Hi everyone, it's so good to see you here tonight. Uh, it's starting to feel a lot like Christmas. Not sure about you, but I'm starting to feel Christmassy. Uh, decorations start going up, trees are all over the place, lights are up there flashing, tinsel seems to be everywhere, stockings as well. The shops feel like they've been playing Christmas songs for six months. Um, And I don't know about you, but this is the time where we can be very emotional. There's a lot of emotional charge going around, and for some, it can be stress. Stress can grow and grow and grow at a time like this. So much to do, such little time. So many people to disappoint if things go wrong this Christmas. And those feelings come from the real expectations of Christmas, But for some others, it might be childhood excitement that's building, because gifts are so fun. You get to give them, you get to receive them, it's just a whole round good time. And those feelings, again, are from the expectations of that actually happening on Christmas Day. It's going to actually happen. And whatever emotions you're feeling this Christmas, they're normally coming from those real expectations. And this happens every year. It will happen next year, it happened last year, and it even happened at the very first Christmas. Because there were real expectations that God would fulfill his promises. There'd been so much waiting, so much build-up, so many high expectations. Now, it's actually going to happen. And we're going to see an oncoming flood of joy. Because... Someone is coming. Their arrival is upon us. And this flood of joy comes from those very real expectations of the very first Christmas. But why joy? In this crazy, busy season of life, why should we have genuine joy? Why should you have joy this Christmas? Well, to answer that question, we're going to need to look at Luke 1 together. And we're going to start tonight by looking at verse 5. That's where we're going to start, verse 5. And this is our first point. Bad time, right people. Look at verse 5. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. All right, this opening sentence is full of context. We've got a map up on the screen. Um, it's telling us what's happening in history, this first sentence. Right after two kings, is what we finished last week, the exiles had gone off into Babylon. There they were. But they've returned to rebuild, and the tides of history have changed, and now we're under Roman occupation in Jerusalem, where King Herod, horrible Herod, ruled. This is not a good time in Israel's history. This is not what they were hoping for when they came back from exile. It's not quite as bad as exile, but it's kind of like home exile, right? Like what being in prison is to exile, being under house arrest is the Roman occupation. Sure, house arrest isn't as bad as exile. Oh, sorry, (laughs) house arrest isn't as bad as prison, but you're still definitely not having a good time. But in these days, we focus in on the temple in Jerusalem and a particular priest named Zechariah. And this Zechariah guy was part of Abijah's division. And the reason Luke writes this is because it gives us more information for what happens next. 
why it's his turn to do the incense in the temple. Because all the priests of the temple were divided up, like rostered onto different things, kind of like gospel teams. There were 24 teams of priests, and Abijah was the eighth team. That's all from 1 Chronicles 24. Now, his wife, she was called Elizabeth. And these, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are two ordinary people, and Luke is pointing us to them as we start to look for this promised Messiah. Look at down at verse 6. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. These two people were righteous and blameless. That's a big deal. They were living by faith and obeying what God had said. But that blameless word or that blameless phrase there, it doesn't mean sinless. We should get that clear. It's used a lot over the Bible, all over the Bible, to describe someone who's had their sin forgiven, right? The consequences of sin, when they come, these people can't be blamed. It's already been done away with. They are blameless. We can go through the whole Bible and see it everywhere. King David, he was blameless. Even though he's a famous sinner, he always repented. Abraham, he was told to be blameless. He turned from idols to serve and to follow the living God. Noah even was blameless, even though there were times of disobedience. Yet he sought God time and time again. These people are blameless, not sinless. Paul, even in the New Testament, prays for all these different churches. The Ephesian church, the Philippian church, the Corinthian church, even the Thessalonian church. That they all would be found blameless on the day that Jesus returns. And so this blameless word is very much to do with a sinner repenting and God doing the forgiving. Because that's the end result. They are now blameless. So, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous and blameless, faithfully serving God. That's a very good start as we start to search for the Messiah. But look down at verse 7. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. It might be very easy to skim over this part of the story. We might know it so well. This is a bad time for Israel, yes. But even for these two blameless people, they're having their own terrible time. It would be soul-crushing not to have kids, to try and to try and to try and to try and only grow old. We learn later that that's their constant prayer, praying and praying for the blessing of children. The furthest thing from Zechariah and Elizabeth would have been joy. That's unreachable, surely. That's unattainable. Joy at a time like this? But even amongst this sadness, God will fulfill his promises, and the fulfillment of those promises is what will turn their sadness into joy. This gets us to our second point for tonight, getting the message. Because verse 8 gets the ball rolling on this. Look down with me at verse 8. When his division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by Lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to burn incense. 
All right? This might feel like a few odd details to include, but they make the story so vivid. When we look at the temple, which will come up on the screen, we've just got a nice little map. There's, it's a huge place. But Zechariah is going to go into the holy place. The further we go up, the more sacred it is. And he, we're going to go outside the holy of holies. If we go to the next slide, all the way up there to burn incense. That's where it is. Just imagine you're in Zechariah's shoes. People are praying outside the temple. You're with them, but then you're the only one sent into this massive temple. It's the inner part. No one else is coming in. And you walk through this huge room by yourself. The ceilings feel like they're sky high. The pillars are gigantic next to you. And as you keep walking, you're walking towards this great big curtain, the Holy of Holies. And that's the barrier between you and a holy God. And you get to the very last thing in this room, the altar of incense. You are as close as you could possibly be to this curtain. And as you're there lighting the incense, knowing that the dwelling place of Yahweh, his earthly throne, is meters from you, all of a sudden an angel, a messenger from God, is standing right next to you. The angel who's normally in God's presence, normally behind the curtain sort of vibe, is standing right next to you. And when Zechariah saw this angel, he was terrified. Real terror. But that is not what the angel is trying to bring. It's quite the opposite. This angel, this messenger from God, is bringing a message of joy. Which brings us to our third point for tonight, a great big reason for joy. Look down at verses 13 and 14. The angel says, Don't be afraid. Instead, Elizabeth will bear you a son. His name will be John. There will be joy and delight, and many will rejoice at his birth. This will be a time of wonderful and great joy. There will be an abundance, seemingly, of joy. Zechariah, you're going to have a son. He's going to be John. This is the message coming directly from God. And that by itself would be an amazing and lovely answer to the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth. But there's going to be something great. There's going to be a big promise fulfilled. And then we'll see the reason why all of this is happening. There's going to be something great. There's going to be a big promise fulfilled. And then we'll see the reason why all of this is happening. There's a great big reason for many to have joy. So let's explore all three parts of this in verses 15 to 17. Let's go through it together. Verse 15, there's going to be something great. For he, John, this miraculous baby, will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. God sees John, this promised baby, and what he's going to do as great. Just let that sink in for a moment. The God who made the sky, every star in it, the God who thought of all the intricate ways life would happen on this earth, whose mind can conceive infinite wonders and mysteries, will look 
at a homeless guy in the wilderness, and he is what God will say is great. John's whole life is also going to be dedicated to doing this great thing. In Numbers 6, part of dedicating yourself to the Lord is not drinking wine or beer. We see it's not going to be a one-off night. It's going to be a whole life, actually, dedicated to God. And this great work is actually going to be motivated by God himself. John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God is going to be working through him even in his mother's womb. And we actually get to see that next week. All the way through the Old Testament, if the Spirit of God was with someone, great things are about to happen. He's great in God's sight because he's dedicated, he's set apart for a very particular work. But what is he actually going to do? What is it that this man will do that will outshine the glory of the midday sun? What is it that this man will do that is more awe-inspiring than every star in the night sky? What is the work that God himself sees as great? Look at verse 16. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. That is what God deems as great. That turning from sin back to God, who's promised to forgive, that is more wonderful in God's sight than all the wonders of creation. And this turning back language are along those lines of being blameless. Turn the people back to the Lord their God. That's the picture of salvation. So how is John actually going to go about turning the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God? How is he going to go about doing this great work? And that's where we get to our next point, where we see a big promise fulfilled, a very big promise fulfilled. Look at verse 17. He will go before him. He, being John the Baptist, will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous. Okay, so John is going to be the forerunner of God himself as he comes. John will go before the Lord. And he's going to do what Elijah did. Now remember Elijah, he's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. He spent his whole life, his whole life was dedicated to calling Israel to repent and turn back to God. And so John will do this great work in the spirit of Elijah. And that's not the strangest of ideas. John isn't Elijah, the person. But he will live like Elijah lived. Think about King Charles for a moment. He wants to rule in the spirit of the late Queen Elizabeth. That doesn't mean Charles is Elizabeth. But he wants to do what she did. John is going to call Israel to repent and turn back to God. He will preach it, he will proclaim it, just like Elijah. And this part of the message is twofold. Not only do we see the way in which John is going to be turning the sons of Israel back to God, but we see the last big promise before the Messiah can come fulfilled. And it's been like a countdown all the way through the Old Testament, but this is it. This is the big one before the Messiah can come. And it's been a huge one. It's been going down for thousands of years. Just imagine it. 
continually going down, and now we're at one. The expectations of what will happen next are huge. Look at Malachi 4. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And here is that baby. Here is that baby that's coming in the spirit of Elijah. John is the fulfillment. He is the Elijah calling Israel back as the Lord comes. The great and awesome day of the Lord It's here. When this baby comes, the countdown will be done. The Lord is arriving. And what we get in the next part of verse 17, the middle of verse 17, are pictures. The first picture we get is to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And the second picture we get is to turn the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous. And this first picture is one of brokenness turned to healing. The picture of division we will see restored. Just think about how sad it would be to see a family picture where the father hates his own children and the children hate their own father. Yet, what will be seen, what will happen, what is coming is actually restoration. John, this Elijah figure and the Lord coming after him will bring restoration. The other picture that we get is of the disobedient, those going the wrong direction, who spurn God as they go. We will see them turn and live righteously. People will turn from disobedience to righteousness. So, we know there is a great work coming. John will turn the people back to God. We know there is a big promise fulfilled here. But what's the reason? Well, the reason being... So that as the Lord comes, the people are prepared for him. This is the reason for joy. Look at verse 17. All this, verse 17, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. That is what God has set his heart on. Him with a people whom he has forgiven. God even has joy over one sinner who repents. This is the greatest, the biggest, the reason for joy. God is arriving and he'll be with his people. God is arriving and will be with his blameless people. And John will be the one to prepare God's people for that arrival. This is the message that the angel of the Lord in the holy temple has. And it's a great, big reason for joy. But, and this brings us to our fourth point tonight, we see a bad response and a good sign. As Zechariah is standing there, remember, with the incense in front of the Holy of Holies, that massive curtain, and here's this official message from God. He asks, look at verse 18. This is quite ridiculous when you think about it. Verse 18, how can I know this? Zechariah asked, the angel, for I am old and my wife is well along in years. What? What more does Zechariah want? How can you know this? God just told you in a miraculous way. 
You are standing on the threshing threshold of his throne room, and he sent you a messenger. Zechariah is a blameless man, but he is not a sinless one. And we can actually see here his first response is unbelief. His mind is set on the normal things of life, the here and the now. I'm old. How could this possibly happen? And what we see here is him giving more authority to his own experience than from the message from God. And it's very easy to look back at Zechariah and just see how foolish he was. He didn't trust God's message, God's word, over his own experience. Yet, how often do we do that? We all have God's word, and it's as miraculous as standing on the threshold of his throne room. That's what you have in God's word. Yet because of our experience, we think we know better than God. That's the heart of unbelief. And this is actually very relatable. It's a very real look at Zechariah. So the question is, well, how's God going to respond to Zechariah's unbelief? He's going to show him patience and grace. God is still going to work through him. A sign is going to be given to him even to remedy this. Look at verses 19 and 20. They are strong words, but verse 19 and 20, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak. That's the sign. You'll become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. When Zechariah has a son and names him John, only then will Zechariah be able to speak again. Think about that. For nine months, unable to speak, silent. Yet, this silence speaks volumes to the people outside. They know something has gone on. They know something has happened. This is out of the ordinary. What? He can't speak to them or tell them what's gone on. But Zechariah here has a message, even a sign. And at this point, we as readers are meant to feel this anticipation welling up for joy. It's about to happen. The Lord is coming. Zechariah would have been feeling that, so excited knowing that this is all about to happen. But he can't speak. Next week, we'll actually hear from Zechariah again. And this blameless man has an epic song to sing to God for his faithfulness. But that's next week. Now, we've looked at Zechariah. But what about Elizabeth? Because our passage here doesn't actually end on this silent note. But rather, it ends on a lovely declaration from Elizabeth. At the end of our story, she has conceived. And she's not only seeing her disgrace being washed away, but the blessing of God is coming. Look down at verse 25. These are beautiful words. The Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. She's speaking of God's grace to her personally. Her disgrace has been taken away and replaced with blessing. The Lord has done this wonderful thing for her. She knows God's grace. 
She knows it. Do you? Do we here know God's grace? Because Elizabeth responds by praising God for his grace to her. We even know God's grace to the fuller extent. How much more should we praise God for his grace fully revealed in Jesus' birth? Jesus left the glory that is his to come and to die for you. For you. How much more can we say like Elizabeth, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor to take away my disgrace. The Lord has done this for me. So, this Christmas, when the real pressures and expectations are building, the Lord coming to his people, that's what we're celebrating. That's what we're remembering. But the Lord coming to his people is also what we're looking forward to, because that's our hope. Now, knowing this won't remove these pressures magically or the expectations that you have on yourself, but they do put them into perspective. We all have different expectations on us this Christmas, but we all rightly should have the same joy. We all have a great big reason for joy. Christ the King is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you used John to prepare a people to do a great work and to fulfill your promises that bring about joy. Please, may we have joy that Christ did arrive for our sake. And we pray all of this in his holy and awesome name. Amen.